if war is politics by other means, if the purpose of war is to achieve political objectives uh, in order to figure out whether you can win a war and what you need to win a war, you have to know what those political objectives are. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, and we're joined by FP columnist Rosa Brooks, Senior Future of War Fellow at New America, professor at Georgetown University, and author of How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything, and Colin Call, who is heading up FP's shadow government blog with Julie Smith and Derek Chalet. He's currently a professor at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service in the Security Studies program. ER nerds, we have some awesome new mugs that we're debuting. Send us your ideas or a sad, sad sob story, and you may be one of the lucky ones. And the mugs are fantastic. We have one that says Team Rosa, and we have some, one that says Team Corey, and then we one that no one's going to want that says you're absolutely right, David. And then there's one that says Undersecretary of Snark. And if you want one of these in particular, make a good case. You know, and, and then every week I'll tell Rosa and Corey who wins, you know, who gets the most requests. It'll be fantastic. I'm afraid that one of us is going to get voted off the island. Yeah, yeah. I don't like this competitive <laughs> spirit that's rising up in that's the That's the way it is. It's everything is Hunger Games. <laughs> that's my fear. Everything. That's what Washington is. That's what all this winning feels like. Yeah, that's what this winning feels like <laughs> is exactly right. This is the capital, at, you know, in, in Hunger <laughs> so Games. It's the capital it's of the deep it, state. It really is. <laughs> It really is. Anyway, email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, you know, right at the Deep State Cafe, which my mother, when I said it on the last podcast, thought I said the Beefcake Cafe, which it is not, although Colin looks really great today. Um, but um, you, you really do look I, great I, today, I do, Colin. I do. It's the tight, it, despite the tight T-shirt, it it is, is tight. this is not he's, the beefcake. Yeah, he's coming yeah. here all oiled up from the well, gym. Um, anyway, we had the boy. This studio is small. Yeah, really. Sometimes it feels smaller than others. Uh, we had the following conversation. So you know, we uh, talk about what's going on each week. Here's something that I noticed that's going on that doesn't seem to be getting a lot of press, although in my day, this is the kind of story that would. I saw in the course of 36 hours a story about deploying Marines to Syria. I saw a story about deploying Rangers to Syria. I saw a story about deploying thousands of more troops to Afghanistan. We already know that we sent in special ops to Yemen, which was Colin's idea in the last administration, and busted, tr- <laughs> and they just they just did it. And and when asked about all of this, the Trump administration, when asked about the Marines going into Syria, the Trump administration says that the president has been made aware of this. Yes, the good news and the bad news is that someone else is apparently running our foreign policy, not the White House. Right. Well, that is the good news and the bad news. But, you know, the president has been made aware of the fact that troops have been deployed. That was nice of Jim Mattis to let him know. I think I appreciate that. But, like, what's going on? We're like – this. if if Barack Obama had sent one Marine within 30 miles of Syria, it would have caused, like, you know, protests in the street, insanity – 
And, he, and in the past week, we've done more escalating in this region than at any time since the surge. Or am I getting that wrong? Well, I think two things are intersecting. One is you have an administration that made as one of its central foreign policy pillars such that you can talk about anything that's related to Trump and a degree of intellectual coherence, kind of battling uh, radical Islamic terrorism writ large, which is kind of every group from the Islamic State to Al Qaeda to the Muslim Brotherhood to Iran, you, to, you to name Muhammad it. Ali's son. Correct. Uh, that's right. that's that's right. Uh, to include probably most devout Muslims in the United States uh, as well. But nevertheless, they've obviously made this a signature item. The other thing that they uh, talked a lot about during the transition, frankly, and that they've tried to execute, is to you know stop the micromanaging from uh, from the White House to the Pentagon that, uh, that you know the Obama administration uh, was so. Uh, uh, prone to do. And I think these two things have collided uh, to basically give uh, the uh, Pentagon a a lot more room basically to escalate uh, across a number of conflicts. And we're seeing this in Yemen. We've already had more airstrikes against al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, AQAP, this group in Yemen. Put aside the the raid uh, for a moment. You've seen just more airstrikes uh, uh, so far this year than you saw from Obama um, uh, all of last year. You also are, it's looking like we're going to double our contingent of forces in Syria from about 500 special operations forces to include, uh, you know, four or 500 additional forces to include Marines and and Rangers. And then not surprisingly, you had General Votel up on the Hill saying that um, they'll likely have a recommendation to have more forces in Afghanistan. And I will tell you, as someone who worked all of these issues in the Obama administration, the military will always tell you they want more forces in Afghanistan because the Afghans will never be good enough uh, to do what what they need to do. Um, They're losing terrain and there will always be reason for more or GIs uh, on the ground. So what's interesting is you've got this escalation across the board with very little public conversation, very little debate. And as far as I can tell, almost no process on the inside of the Trump administration. And that's a recipe for mission creep, quagmire, getting people killed and getting more deeply involved in some of the messiest conflicts on earth. Well, it's, 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 it's interesting. I mean, as usual, whenever we talk about things like, well, are these too many troops? Are these not enough troops? The, you know, the, the more important question is, well, what are you actually trying to do? Um, you know, depend, if you're trying to, if you're trying to uh, permanently hold terrain throughout Afghanistan and keep both ISIS and the Taliban from gaining a foothold, then the amount of troops we have is not nearly enough. We need hundreds of thousands more or less forever, or at least for the next decade or so. Uh, you know, and, and, and I, th- I think what we haven't seen in this administration yet at all, uh, at least in public, is is any real conversation about well, what, what, what what's the goal here? You know, we're gonna we're gonna win wars from now on, but what does that actually mean in terms of our political objectives? I mean, this is the this is the most sort of basic strategic question in 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 the the original book, the book by Klaus Fitz, which we all love, uh, or by Klaus Fitz's wife, as the case may be. Um, you know, is is if if the if war is politics by other means, if the purpose of war is to achieve political objectives uh, in order to figure out whether you can win a war and what you need to win a war, you have to know what those political objectives are. And it does seem pretty clear that although I, I, I would like to assume that in various little pockets in the Pentagon, people are having that conversation, it doesn't seem to be connected to the White House and it certainly doesn't seem to be connected to Congress or to the American people. And just to flag one other issue as far as I know, there's been no discussion of War Powers Act notification to Congress 
of sending these additional U.S. troops into places such as Syria. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and whether Congress decides it cares or not. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll just say on that, I think that, you know, the, the administration would probably make the same some, same argument the Obama administration did, which is that it's covered under the authorizations for the use of military force against al-Qaeda, of which AQAP <laughs> in Yemen, uh, obviously elements within uh, Afghanistan and in Syria, the Islamic State, which grew out of al-Qaeda in Iraq, et cetera, et cetera. The only... is as much of a stretch for this administration as it was for the Republicans on the Hill yeah. Yeah. would have gone and yeah. been talking about the War Powers Act before, and now they're completely silent. But, you know, what strikes me also as I look at this is um, back in the days before we were broadcasting from the Deep State Cafe, when this was just the epicenter of the blog, I'm sorry to say. (laughs) You mean the blob, uh, blob, not the blog. blog, The blog too. Yeah, but when this was the epicenter of the blob, we were sometimes a little bit critical of the Obama administration. I never was, David. That was all you. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Now you're just kissing up to Colin. But uh, but be, he's a beefcake be, 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 because of the beefcake. Exactly. <laughs> that's actually his uh, his Twitter handle. Colin that's going to be his mug beefcake too. Beefcake call. Yeah. yeah. But because of the sense that the Obama administration had overlearned the lessons of the Bush administration, right? But here we have the Trump administration that seems to have unlearned the lessons of both administrations, both Bush and Obama, by going in, going in without a plan, going in without a process, going in um, without any public debate, going in without a mission. So this is this is you know I mean I was really sure back when I knew that Hillary Clinton was going to win. Um, I knew she was going to win because we had gone from antithesis, thesis with Bush to antithesis with Obama and that Hillary was going to be kind of synthesis, that she was going to kind of balance things out a little bit. But instead, what we've ended up with is this just, you know, kind of off its hinges approach of the Trump administration where literally he's sort of setting aside the past 16 years. Yeah, I mean, I, I I like your Hegelian reference, by the way. I think <laughs> yeah, they, they, we, very, if we went from thesis impressive. to antithesis, I think we're now in non-tithesis or non-synthesis or something like that. Non-synthesis. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly right. That's, try saying yeah. that three times fast. Look, I think in those three domains that you mentioned, uh, you know, Afghanistan, Yemen, and Syria, that the the part where it's, there's probably is the most strategy is on the Syria side because obviously uh, General, you know, uh, Secretary Mattis uh, came to the White House uh, about a week ago, uh, provided um, his strategic review of the counter-Islamic state campaign. And part of that, the next stage in Syria is taking Raqqa. And these forces are basically the next ratchet of escalation to provide artillery fires and some ground and some support for the coalition of Kurds and Arabs that will probably take uh, Raqqa. I think the reason why you haven't seen more flash um, and and them kind of rolling out in a big way the strategy, which is probably more uh, what the Obama team would have done, is because I think they're afraid to do that uh, in a way that alienates the Turks right now prior to uh, the referendum that Erdogan uh, I think the Turks are going to be good at getting alienated all by themselves, right, though. It's a pity that their guy They're alienating like crazy. It's a pity their guy Flynn isn't in there pitching for him as as as, as they were paying, if I could get five hundred thousand dollars to write a single op-ed, well, but I'd apparently, be, I, apparently you know, they, uh, they want their yeah. money back. Apparently, they don't think that Flynn did such a great job, and indeed, well, I can see why they might yeah. feel that way at they, this point. They, that's 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 true. And 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 by the way, listeners, this should dispel your notion that Colin gets five hundred thousand for the op-eds that he writes for us because he doesn't. <laughs> um, Rose does, but we but should. He does not. We should. Yeah, no, no, you yeah. should definitely. You know, I don't, I don't mean to put you on the spot here, Colin, but. But let me push back just a little bit on that. 
I don't know how we can say it's a strategy in Syria if we don't have a long-term goal. And I, I have there's no sign of a long-term goal in Syria, right? It seems like if you are fighting ISIS and ISIS is hauled up in Raqqa and you want to declare some kind of progress, then go blow up Raqqa. But that's tactical. It's not strategic. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I, I, I think that's fair at some level. It clearly, you know, there's an overall campaign to disrupt, dismantle, defeat. I guess Trump now says demolish. Uh, there must be some other D words. Squash. Uh, uh, Squash. You make, know, make Islamic great. State. Yeah. We used to call them ISIL. He calls them ISIS. The Arabs call them Daesh, whatever, yeah. this group. Uh, and th- these are tactical and operational objectives. The near-term question that they had to confront, uh, which they're wrestling with now, and there's a good Wall Street Journal uh, piece on this uh, recently kind of going over some of this debate, is kind of how do you go after Raqqa? Because unlike in, in Iraq, where we have local forces and a government we can work with in Syria, we don't have uh, the same uh, uh, type of scenario. And so we just kind of, it's kind of a game of pickup basketball. And the only players on the on, on the floor at the moment are, are the Syrian Democratic Forces, this kind of mishmash of, of Syrian Kurds and, and Arabs. But you're right. It's not clear to me what the broader play is here, especially as it relates to the civil war in Syria, which is driving uh, extremism and now and now is taking on ever more complicated dimensions as the Russians and the Turks flirt with one another, and they're both engaged in northwest Syria as the regime consolidates its position in certain places, as we're really active uh, in northern Syria, um, as the Jordanians and the Israelis are doing things in the south. It's a completely com- – it's a very complex mosaic, and it's not clear to me they've thought at all about how whatever they do vis-a-vis the Islamic State in Syria links up to any uh, goal, diplomatic or otherwise, as it relates to Syria. And I don't even know who would run that place well, since there's not much of a State Department. Well, there's <laughs> – there's not much of the State Department. It's still the best line. And the one we've quoted in almost every episode since she uttered it was uh, Rosa's line about Rex Tillerson being on a milk carton at this point. Yeah, I think I stole that line from somebody else, but now I can't remember who. But it was a good line. He is a brilliant mix of aloofness and inconsequentialness. Well, well, I mean, wow. I, I think <laughs> that's, so. That's a one-two punch. Part of what's so weird about what's going on is it feels like there's no unitary U.S. government. I mean, we all complained during the Obama administration, not all of not all of us perhaps, Colin, but, but many of us complained about sort of over-centralization of decision-making uh, in the White House. In Colin's office. Um, <laughs> only when Colin, when Colin, when Colin was, was at DOD, we did. puppeteer. We did. Um, yes. but, 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 but here, now I feel like we have sort of multiple different U.S. governments which appear to have have different processes and perhaps different goals. I mean, Tillerson seems to be non-existent, completely non-existent. So his goal seems to be to, you know, cease to exist, which is which is not so great for the State Department, but leave that I aside. Said, I, I, Colin, before we started recording, was referring to my Twitter activity, for which I, I, I'm ashamedly admit to. And one of the things that I said the other day was that I knew somebody, and I didn't mention it in the tweet, but the person was a now-deceased congressman who I thought a lot of, who used to refer to Warren Christopher as the black hole of charisma. <laughs> and I said that given his recent performance, Tillerson is making Christopher look like Axl Rose. You know, yeah. <laughs> so at least he was there. Well, but 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 we have um, in the Pentagon, we have Jim Mattis, who clearly is pursuing goals, which I could I could take a guess at articulating what his goals are based on his his prior comments and so forth. He's not a guy who thinks the Russians are warm and fuzzy. And then 
we also have Trump and Kushner and Bannon in the White House who seem to be having their own meetings with random foreign leaders at which they say and do random things, which they don't clear with anybody beforehand. And so Mattis is surprised and Tillerson knows nothing about it and so forth. So so it's not it's it it almost seems at times um, as though the the goals of the White House and perhaps the goals of other parts of the U.S. government are, are becoming increasingly incompatible and in contradiction. And that that may, you know, explain why we have this baffling set of actions that nobody has explained. Well, and also without it, with an absence of a process, you do get these kind of strange statements like the president has – is, has been made aware right, right. of the deployment of Marines to Syria. Are we trying to make Turkey happy? Are we not trying to make Turkey happy? Are we trying to make Russia happy? Are we not trying to make Russia what, happy? Or, 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 well, doing? and also, I mean, you know, we can come up with a bunch of other things too in terms of the the non-existence of the process ranging from no response to North Korea. No, this Korea. is going to be a fascinating four-year experiment in what it is like to have no government. This is going to be awesome for libertarians. Well, well maybe well, not. Is, We're going to spend is, money and yet have no government. This is, this, is Bannon's, this is Bannon's vision of things. But North Korea happened. There was no response to North Korea. Now this week we've seen this other bizarre thing, which was Mexico's foreign minister has I – mean, actually, it's last week, folks, because when we recorded this. But the, the Mexican foreign minister came to Washington and didn't – Inform the State Department. Apparently, Tillerson was made aware of it uh, after the fact by um, the media, um, and 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 met with the White House. Didn't meet with the State Department. This is this is you know the, the whole reason the NSC exists is to ensure that everybody knows what's going on. Yeah, I think one thing is I, look. There's been lots of reports uh, on on this, but you know tr- Trump is a homebody. Uh, and he also gets kind of bored, uh, and so he, he always interestingly people, his home isn't the White House, you know, yeah, well, it's Mar-a-Lago. So, so. But but in essence, he's his wife he's, and children's home. To is the somewhere degree else that he's involved in the national security process at all, it appears to be to regularly host dinners with some subset of his cabinet. Uh, obviously, this was done most infamously in the lead up to the Yemen raid, but all the reports suggest he continues to do this. So you know, a couple times a week, he has uh, cabinet members uh, over um, for dinner, and they have conversations on the, these things. Who knows? what gets uh, discussed there. The only common denominator, though, appear to be the president himself, Jared Kushner is his uh, son-in-law, Steve Bannon, sometimes uh, Reince Priebus. It's not clear if H.R. McMaster attends any Sometimes Ivanka. And, and, and you know, it's, it, one gets the sense that a lot of things are brought to him and he either kind of says, yeah, that sounds fine or not without a lot of deliberation. And that's that can be empowering for the cabinet officials who then go off and do their thing. But it's it's not it's it's also a way to create all sorts of mistakes. And I'm also not clear that Rex Tillerson gets invited to very many of these things. I mean, I think I think Mattis has got been you know, given we, a lot of we authority. We should invite Rex Tillerson to dinner at the Deep State Cafe. Well, yeah, that's that that man. Wasn't there a story when, when Trump was having dinner at the Trump Hotel with Farage right. and that, right. like Tillerson at was like at a table, booth. like at the little kids' <laughs> looking over table his shoulder next, every next, now and then, sadly. And, and, and yeah. Farage was a last minute guest, and they made space for him. They didn't make space for Tillerson. <laughs> yeah. I feel bad for the poor But there guy. is always he, room for you, Rex, here at the Deep State Cafe. Right. If he hadn't raped the environment of the planet for the rest of the, his Hey, the he's the only guy career, in the Trump administration would, who believes that climate change is real. you got to take what you can get. Oh, yeah, compared to Pruitt, who right. doesn't believe in man-made climate change. Well, when you've seen it firsthand how humans can change the environment. <laughs> right. When like, you've changed it. That's right. Yeah. We've been changing the climate for the past hundred years <laughs> since John D. Rockefeller got us going. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, that's a that's an excellent that's an it's an excellent point. Well, you know the way Trump runs the government is not it's 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 certainly not like a president, right? These dinners is an it's an interesting phenomenon. It's a little bit more like a king, and you know what it reminds me of 
is a book called The Emperor by Richard Kapuczynski, mm-hmm. which is a story of Haile Selassie. Yes, yes an and excellent book. It's an excellent book, and, and, and it's short, ER listener, very short book, so you can go and read it. But one of the things that was interesting about it was that what would happen is people would come in and they would present themselves to Haile Selassie, the Ethiopian emperor, and they would say things like, my cow died, or my neighbor's you know, tractor ran over my cow. Uh, and then and then the, the emperor would listen and periodically he would turn to the guy to his right and he would whisper something in his ear and the guy would write something down. And then after the meeting, the guy would walk outside the room and he would announce to everybody, a new cow will be presented to so-and-so or whatever, you know, came, kind of came out of the notebook that he was reading from. And this guy, who had no official title in the government, came to be known as the minister of the pen. And, and 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 he was the most powerful guy because no one heard what the president whispered <laughs> to him. And he was able to walk out and say, this is what the president wants. And there are all these people who are around the president who are essentially ministers of the pen. Or at least who are vying for that job, but they're all stabbing well, each other in the back. They're asserting that they have that yes. job. Stephen Miller and Sebastian Gorka and Stephen Bannon and all those people are going around going – well, I speak for the White House, for the president, for this you know, mystical That's an point. interesting idea. I think we here in the Deep State Cafe should simply start doing the same thing ourselves. We should just start asserting policy initiatives on behalf of the Trump administration. I, that might be as effective as anything coming out of the White well, House. Well, I, I do think you're having this – you have these two rival camps. I, I, I think of them as the axis of ideologues versus the axis of adults. The axis of, of ideologues being kind of Bannon, Miller, Gorka, Anton, who's kind of the new Ben Rhodes uh, position over in the West Wing. That's not very nice. Um, We've been tough on Ben Rhodes, but that's not nice to Ben Rhodes. Right. I'm saying he's not the new Ben Rhodes. Uh, yeah. He's the new Ben Rhodes position yeah, uh, right. at, the, at the White House. But folks basically who – you know, because of their proximity to the Oval Office, or in Bannon's case, because you're the first and last person in in the room uh, with the president on a lot of things, you're able to advance an agenda through the president and f- claiming to speak for the president or call people up on the phone and speak uh, for the president. That's quite ideological. That's at odds with our values. That threatens our allies. That undermines our global leadership. So that's kind of the axis of ideologues. Then you kind of have the adults. You know, you have Mattis. You have Tillerson, who's an adult, although somewhat uh, disempowered uh, at the moment. There's Pence. Kelly and Pompeo and others. And I've, you know, I've heard that they're basically ta- all talking to one another and actually trying to get, come to some agreement on How things. How do we get this guy right, exactly to pay right. attention? And, and I think what we're going to see in the coming year and frankly over the next four years if the if he's president for that long is uh, which one of these camps ultimately ends up uh, winning out. And I, it's clear which one that would be better for the country, but I don't know which well, one's going to Well, but I, you know, I also, I have to say, this deserves a little bit further scrutiny. You know, I, I agree there's the ideologues and there are a couple kinds of ideologues within the ideologues. There's the wacky, insane, out-of-control libertarians, Alabama, and you just want to blow up the government and so, and so forth. There's also some hard-right conservative ideologues on a number of issues. But in terms of the grown-ups, this was, this was an, an appellation that was bestowed on these people a, a little bit too quickly in my book. And, you know, Jim Kelly, yeah. 
He was like, this guy's going to be a grown-up. And I see no traces of grown-up supervision of U.S. immigration policy, border policy. Yeah, that is true. And you uh, had him out defending. You had him out yeah. defending this this terror, this rumor, basically that they were going to separate women and their children yeah. at the borders yeah. as a deterrent mechanism for immigration, which was right and unconscionable. And, and, and clearly, and, and bizarre, and bizarre because normally in the government, perhaps too often. You have the public affairs people saying, oh, no, you do not want to say that. You really don't want to have your picture taken as you drag some poor guy out of the hospital where he's just had surgery to deport him or out of the hypothermia shelter at church or yank a child away from their parent. That is not a good photo opportunity for you. And there doesn't, even that doesn't seem to be happening. So, they, so, <laughs> so I, don't, I don't see a lot of grown-up supervision at DHS. And then another grown-up is McMaster. And everybody has high regard for McMaster. But the first big battle McMaster made was within this non-state of the union, state of the union that Trump made about the issue of whether you refer to it as Islamic terrorism or not. And and McMaster lost on that issue. He's apparently not having a real good time getting rid of what I'm told is referred to as the Flintstones, you know, the, 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 <laughs> the Mike Flynn, former staffers within the place. He's hiring a couple of his own people who are somewhat credible people. But, you know, we've, we see this. You know, I was thinking about it when we heard that John Huntsman had been named to be ambassador to Moscow. And you think, well, John Huntsman's a well-meaning, well-intentioned guy and patriotic and is taking this job because he thinks it'll help. But on the other hand, you know, I, you know, we've seen Tillerson get used. We've seen Kelly get used. We've seen McMaster get sort of bumped aside. And at a certain point, don't the, you know, some of these grownups realize that their beards – that they're being used, that the NSC is being a front for the SIG. They're, they're Potemkin that, cabinet members. It's a, well, it's a Potemkin NSC and that there is this Potemkin NSC that has a little bit of process, not so much, not so often, and all the real stuff is happening someplace else. Or am I overstating that? I, I, look, the one, I might push back in one area. I, look, I think that the place where – I mean I don't think DOD is being used. For example, I mean, I actually think that that uh, that Jim Mattis uh, and Joe Dunford, the chairman of the uh, the Joint Chiefs, have a lot of schwack uh, in this administration. Schwack. What does that mean, Colin? Could the you ability define to, the, that? The, the ability to get things done to get their way. To you know, and that and I, if anything, I think basically the DOD has been given a, a pretty broad set of authorities and told to just go get them, and they're doing that. That's how we started. Uh, they started this show. I also think that you know, look. Trump said he was going to rely on his generals. He now has a, a host of his generals uh, around him. I also think it's really hard for them to to ultimately check Mattis too much because he's one of the two or three people in the entire government right now Trump can't fire. Um, so I actually do – while I don't think that there's a lot of demonstrated influence thus far uh, for uh, for Kelly um, and certainly for Tillerson who we've talked about, I, I do think at DOD. The only, one thing I would say for McMaster, I do get the sense that one of the reasons why the revised executive order on the travel ban was even – incrementally better uh, by taking the Iraqis out is that McMaster fought for that. So that's good. Um, doesn't mean that the EO doesn't suck. It's terrible. Uh, but at least it doesn't have the Iraqis in it. Yeah. Well, that's right. But also the, 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 well, besides that, Mrs. Yeah. Lincoln, I was the, right. The, and the EO is just the beginning of the yeah. of the is the tip of the tip of the iceberg. Um, I've been sitting here going, "Schwack should be superhuman world affairs control yeah. or yeah. something." I'm going to try turn it into an acronym at some point. We'll take suggestions for the acronym, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of demand for the. I've got a lot of schwack mug. Um, <laughs> that sounds a little obscene. It and does. I don't think we should uh, say that anymore on this okay, show. I'm sorry. I don't mean to make the 
Yeah. This is a safe space, resident. Yeah. I apologize. <laughs> it's a microaggression. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to go there. Yeah. <laughs> ouch, uh, ouch. Um, yeah, can you imagine if they didn't – I mean the Trump White House must be the most – it's just macro aggression. Yeah. 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 Do, they do everything huge. They, they don't do these micro. Stories. Come he on. blows up. He yells at yeah. people. Um, I've talked to some folks who have talked to some of the people we've just named who say they spend most of their time sort of talking the boss off the ledge. Yeah. Well, that that's – I mean, I guess – Contra, Colin, your your somewhat glass half full optimistic uh, theory of the case here. Um, it seems to me that people like Kelly and Mattis so far have devoted approximately two thirds of their time not to doing anything in particular that's constructive, but just trying to undo the damage yes. done by some of the crazier things that Trump and Bannon, et cetera, say, you know, to, to have to reassure, oh, no, we're not abandoning Japan. Oh, no, we're not abandoning now. Oh, just kidding. No, he didn't really mean that. Don't worry. Um, you know, and that's not a great use of those guys. I mean, I mean, it's it's good for America and good for the world that they're trying to calm people down. But it it that's not independence. And uh, you know, I do worry. I mean, your 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 example about uh, McMaster having potentially slightly lessened the awfulness of the new executive order. You know, could cut the other way, which is which is that these are people who are very highly respected. Um, and viewed as people of real integrity. And it's, you know, this is the story of a lot of horrific things that have happened historically in many places that good people get co-opted and they tell themselves, well, I made I made this, you know, 2% better than it would have been without me. But then, you know, time well, goes but, on. But and there's, there's, other, there's other ramifications because I'm going to keep pushing back on the grown-up thing until somebody starts behaving like a grown-up. We've set aside – It's not going to be me, Kelly. We, no, God damn it. No, we, knew, <laughs> we knew that. That's why you're here. But, we, we, you know, we can put, set aside Kelly in that regard. And I, I, I think uh, we set aside Tillerson because he's, you know, absent without leave. And, and then – uh, we we turned to Mattis, and certainly Mattis has done some positive things on torture and so forth. We felt a little bit, but here's the thing: Mattis and Dunford ought to know better at this point that when you start deploying troops into situations when you don't have a strategic goal, that leads you into a problem. And so, to some extent, they're acting on the uh, you know in 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 the way that is consistent, perhaps, with the views of others in the Pentagon, and may make sense in a tactical sense. But it's not a grown-up move well, to go and argue that we should put troops. We into don't a know. Place. They may have strategic goals. They just have not been shared with the rest of us. At Except this point. you can't achieve strategic goals in Syria militarily. The United States can't. It requires political collaboration, which is not happening. Yeah. And you know, the natural next step in Syria is you go in, you 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 win in Raqqa. You may, you know, push ISIS out into some of the cracks within the system there. And this sort of Syrian opposition remains fragmented and too weak to do anything. So Assad plus the Russians will get as much control as they can. And the Turks plus perhaps some of the other uh, players of that sort will start saying, no, the issue here is the Kurds. And we've got to start pushing back on the Kurds who helped us and now we're you know we don't need their help anymore, and 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 we're not we, you know that's not a wonderful strategic outcome. Yeah, I, look, I think that you know a lot of it depends on 
on how one defines strategy. Look, I think that they have a vision. They at the Pentagon have a vision that came up through this strategy review. It was called a strategy review for uh, the well, thirty-day one. It's called a strategy review. <clears throat> I know. And they've got to have a strategy. But it was uh, they. They have a vision. You mean like the strategic initiatives group? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they have a vision for what the next step in the counter ISIS campaign should be. I think they are very worried and understand the huge dilemmas in what we want to do with Raqqa and what that does vis-a-vis our relationship with the Turks. And I think they are working overdrive to try to come up with a, a, a set of military and political compensatory measures to reassure the Turks even as we, in essence, arm and train their mortal enemies, this group, the YPG Kurds that are associated with PKK who are fighting and blowing up Turks uh, every single day. I think they are aware of that. What I think they have not shown any sign of doing is how – is whatever one thinks of the play they are going to run of connecting it to this to the broader challenge of Syria. So they and that's a hard problem, but it requires them making some fundamental decisions about what is their play vis-a-vis the Russians. Are they going to try to cooperate with the Russians or not? Are they going to increase or decrease pressure on the regime? Are they willing to talk to the Iranians where you can't have a political solution in Syria without talking to the Iranians, or just keep them on notice and put pressure on them all across uh, the region? It's, there's a whole bunch of, uh, of interconnected diplomatic issues. And then they raise the question of who would then carry out that diplomacy since Rex Tillerson has not been terribly effective to date and he doesn't have a deputy and he doesn't have a bunch of, uh, a bunch of key people. Well, but, you know, well, yeah, except, you know, we, the we'll get to him in a second. But, but you know, <laughs> this gets us into another problem. This was an area that I think we were – correctly critical of the Obama administration on, although we've debated this here with Derek Chalet in the past, and I suspect it'll happen again. And that is, I don't think the Obama administration was very strategic in the region, and you can't take Syria out of the context of Iraq, and you can't take Syria and Iraq out of the context of Iran, and this administration is going to go hard at Iran, and, you know, after Mosul, you know, then they're going to be faced with the question of, you know, what, how do you deal with a government in Baghdad that is primarily controlled by the government of Iran, and Iran has a particularly large stake in this. And then on top of all of that, just to, you know, take it another stake, go beat ISIS. You know, we could go back, you know, and history could look back on the period from certainly 2001 through now um, as the, you know, through and maybe for the next 20 years as the whack-a-mole wars where we go in, find a terrorist group, go after the terrorist group, defeat the terrorist group, create a void where another terrorist group crops up. They grow. They become a different kind of a threat and we go after them. And you know, the, you, I think one has to be strategic in terms of the stabilization of the region, which is political, and you have to be strategic in terms of um, countering uh, extremism in the region, which again – is a different kind of strategy. And somehow you've got to get your security types who are dealing with extremism and your political types who and, – and by the way, your economic types because you've got to rebuild all these countries to the tune of two, $300 billion for which we have not even begun to have that discussion. All of those things have got to be aligned to actually stabilize. Well, I don't think uh, I don't think President Trump, at least, has any interest in the stabilization piece of this or the rebuilding piece. I, I think that you know when you decide that you're going to slash the State Department and the foreign aid budget by 37 percent, I think manifestly you're announcing that you don't really care. Après moi, le deluge. Uh, yeah. You know, we're going to kill the people who want to kill, and then well, that's you why all the military out, people who you know you yeah. guys know know well, you know, screamed about that because in time after time in Iraq and in Afghanistan, the military people ended up giving missions that they 
thought should have gone to development people or they thought should have gone to— No, I think to, that's right. Uh, Although, I, look, I, I, I have heard that in his calls, for example, with, with uh, some of our traditional uh, Arab partners and allies, you know, he has been basically signaling that, that he, Trump, has been signaling that our expectation is they would pony up more resources, find cash, basically, to pay for safe zones and other things in Syria. Look, I think, I think David, you're right on the, on the following score. Sometime in 2017, 2017, we're going to be at a post-Mosul moment in Iraq and a post-Raqqa moment in Syria. And that is really the inflection point for a set of political arrangements that will have to be put in place and thought through now or you will get – you know, ISIS 2.0 or 3.0 right. or 4.0. That's the what's next that, moment. That, right. That's right. And the challenge is it's not clear to me they are thinking through those next moves, period. But I'm also disturbed by the fact that to the degree that I can discern a play from them, it's to go very hard against the Iranians and to, and to in essence, write a blank check for our traditional allies and partners in the region, the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Egyptians and others. And this could actually end up the combination of these things, of going hard at the Iranians and giving a blank check to – uh, the Emirates and the Saudis, I think you can interpret Yemen in this context, for uh, for example, could actually end up uh, kind of pouring gasoline on the sectarian challenges across the region that will make post-Mosul and post-Raqqa issues more difficult. I, look, I, I, the Iranians are bad guys. They're, uh, they do a lot of bad stuff. and uh, We should push back against that. But the notion that you can resolve what Iraq looks like after Mosul or what Syria looks like after Raqqa with not having, without having a sustained dialogue with the Iranians is is a fantasy. Well, and also that you can try and take this out of the context. I mean, we, we, what you just explained makes a lot of sense, and I think uh, that is the direction that it's going. But then it doesn't deal with the inherent Iranian paradox, which is Iraq, which is we need them to keep the you know ISIS down in Iraq, and they control the government in Iraq to some considerable extent right now. And if we go hard at them someplace, they're not going to be so helpful in the other place. It doesn't deal with Syria. And where there's the Russia component and Iran component and the Turkey component plus the Kurdish component, it doesn't deal with Lebanon and Israel where you've got the Iranian component through Hezbollah in uh, Lebanon, which may heat up depending on what happens in Syria. And you've, of course, got Hamas in Israel, which has also got an Iranian component. And if 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 the administration goes hard right on Israel with Friedman and the other people uh, and start embracing some of the Bibi stuff, we're likely to heat that up, which is yet another problem. We haven't gotten into Egypt where they are giving a blank check and CC um, is an issue. But CC and the Gulf states are all going to say, let's go hard after the Muslim yeah. Brotherhood, which in addition to alienating the people in Qatar and Turkey that have been underwriting the Muslim Brotherhood is going to create another set of problems. In other words, this is the region where the song, you know, the knee bones connected to the shin bone. And we're setting ourselves up for any number of collisions. And and one thing that I think will be very interesting is is another potential outcome of what seems to be a divided executive branch, the, the Pentagon moving in a different direction in some ways than the White House, is what happens when uh, an approach pursued by the Pentagon, which is very, very likely to make Russia very, very angry at some point fairly soon, collides with the approach that seems to be being taken by the White House, which is let's let's be pals, best pals with Vladimir Putin. Uh, you know what what hap- what happens when 
Putin does get mad. Very interesting question. I also think that there's another scenario there, which also involves Russia, which could be a little bit worse. And that scenario is that what Trump wants is to be able to declare victory in ISIS and get the hell out. And he wants the other people to assume responsibility. And the Gulf states will assume responsibility and they will win in Yemen and they will push back on Iran and they will stabilize that part of the world to some extent. In Syria, the way that the Syrian government is going to assume responsibility is with the aid of the Russians. And uh, the Russians are going to uh, go in and, as they have, try to strengthen their ties with the Egyptians. And the Russians are going to gain considerable amount of influence in this part of the world, filling a void created by us while simultaneously, because they don't really have a, a goal of stabilizing this and we haven't a strategy for stabilizing it, the refugee flows are going to continue to Europe. And with the refugee flows continuing to Europe, you're going to continue to strengthen the right in Europe, which is going to continue to weaken the Atlantic Alliance, which the Trump administration is also embracing. Right. And so through a policy of embracing um, the weakening of the Atlantic Alliance and empowering Russia, Russia's strategic goal of greater influence in the Middle East and a weaker um, Atlantic alliance is going to make big headway. And our strategic goals of having a strong Atlantic alliance and a stable Middle East will not be advanced. And that seems to me to be you know, uh, one of those big geopolitical watershed mistakes. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's for Putin, it's heads I win, tails you lose in the sense that either they get cooperation with the Trump administration that advances their goals or they just get a discombobulated, non-strategic but highly divisive Trump administration that fractures, erodes, undermines uh, the, the Western liberal order and particularly our alliances with the Europeans, in which case Putin wins. Uh, it was like during the election. You know, he wanted to hurt Clinton help Trump, but just caused chaos, if nothing else. And, you know, he was OK with any of those uh, outcomes. I do think in Syria, uh, David, that you're seeing as a largely as a consequence of events on the ground where these de facto zones of control are emerging. The, the Russians, the Iranians and Assad have essentially consolidated the regime's control of the Western spine. Uh, of uh, the, the parts of the country Assad cares about the most. The Jordanians and opposition groups have, in essence, carved out a buffer zone in the south. The Turks have a little pocket uh, in between two uh, Kurd- large Kurdish areas uh, in, the, in the northwest. And the Americans, uh, we have, in essence, planted our flag in the north, central, and northeastern uh, parts of the, the, the country in the consequence of the counter-ISIS uh, uh, campaign. I think after Raqqa, there is a possibility of, in essence, taking the facts on the ground and turning it into a decentralized arrangement that both provides a ceasefire and potentially a political settlement that, if not getting rid of Assad, diffuses power away from the central government. It would, But it will be extraordinarily tough. It'll, it will require doing things the Trump administration won't want to do, like talk to the Iranians. It may involve a strategic look where you're trying to make trades in places like Syria for things that are going on in other parts of the region, whether it be Israel and the Golan or whether it be Yemen uh, or what or intersections between Syria and Iraq. So you're right that this has to be looked at holistically. It's not clear to me that they are doing that. I wouldn't pretend the Obama administration got this right either. We tended to look at, at it on an issue by issue basis. Um, these folks not only look at it from an issue by issue basis, but they're not even attempting to look at it. Well, and also this is a this is a part of the world where if you had to bet on one player, you know, um, bet on chaos. And if you had to bet on somebody other than chaos, bet on the one who's willing to fight hardest and play dirtiest. 
Uh, in other words, you know, because the one that's going to be willing to use force. And in the case of Syria, Assad plus Russia, or as it suits them, Assad plus Russia plus Iran, are going to be able to have the edge in every place where there isn't a really well-organized alternative. Yeah, but I think they've run out of Schlitz, frankly. I think that, I, I think that they I think they may be able to Schlitz, get Schlitz, Schwack. Right, I got <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, look, I think that they are approaching the limits of what they can take back at reasonable cost. They just took back Palmyra for the second time. They have this little outpost in the eastern part of the country called Deir Azur, which they will probably try to defend. But the Assad regime, even with the Russians and the Iranians and Hezbollah, cannot take back the whole uh, – cannot think, take back the I don't the think they country. can do it right now. But I do think there's one – sorry, one, one thing I should mention. I do think we have incredible amounts of leverage. But it would require the Trump administration to get beyond their rhetorical disdain for nation building. And it's the following. What the Russians and the Iranians and Assad do care about is being able to hold and rebuild the part of the country along the Western spine, which will cost hundreds of billions of dollars. And only the United States can help marshal the resources for that. So we shouldn't – that's a huge piece of leverage that we have over future political arrangements in Syria if they play it right. First of all, I think that the chances that the United States will do that are essentially zero. I do think – that both with regard to that particular solution, but more broadly with regard to the stabilization of the region, the $64,000 question is actually a maybe $600 billion question, which is how do you pay for rebuilding Yemen? How do you pay for rebuilding Iraq? How do you pay for rebuilding Syria? How do you pay for rebuilding Libya? How do you pay for the infrastructure that's going to be necessary to create a functioning Palestine, et cetera? That's hundreds of billions of dollars. There is no development institution within the Middle East to do that. Uh, The Islamic Development Bank doesn't do that. It's not their business. Uh, There is a need for something along the lines of the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. And that actually gets us to an interesting place in all of this conversation, which uh, came up in the peace game that we recently did in Abu Dhabi. uh, And that is look over the course of the next 10 years for China to play an increasingly important role in this part of the world as they start needing money, they start needing infrastructure and the Chinese can play the weakness and the lack of leadership from other countries into something uh, like that kind of a bank where they put in money and you know, I, I, it, it doesn't work with the, the, the northern Syria portion or the portion of this equation. But with all the rest of it, the Gulfies would put in money next to the Chinese. Others would put in money and you could end up with something. And I think that's, that that is a – it's not an economic development piece. It's a strategic piece. Yeah, I think the Chinese historically, if, if you look at their investments in Africa and elsewhere, you know, they're they're more inclined to make investments where they think they can get mercantile gains in terms of natural resources. That doesn't play out very well in Syria, but it may in places like Iraq or Libya. Right. Yeah. Well, and I and I, I think around the Gulf and the infrastructure of the Gulf, and if you look at it with Israel, with Saudi. Uh, with um, Pakistan, with many of the countries in the region, China is now the number one or number two trading partner. So they, they do have a kind of a, 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 a stake in all of this. Well, look, it's very clear that the three of us could solve this if we were given the authority to do it. <laughs> if only this podcast lasted for a little bit longer, we could solve this. Uh, but, well, but we were very close. We were close. Yeah. Well, I think we were close enough that any listener – could tell that we could solve this if we were given that amount of uh, uh, latitude. And, uh, you know, who knows? You know, tune in for another one of these ER podcasts. We may actually solve this problem or we may move on to other even more complicated problems like, uh, for example, a unified theory of physics.
yeah. um, or or something, you know, uh, explaining the popularity of the Kardashians. But in any <laughs> event, those are things that we will save for future podcasts. In the meantime, thank you, Colin. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back sometime soon. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I have been your host. Uh, the program is produced by Maria Ori with the assistance of Alex Dorr. For more information about FP and to subscribe to The ER and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, or Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you very much for joining us. Some folks don't stop till they find the truth. June's Journey is a roaring 20s murder mystery hidden object game. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android or iOS devices and on PC through Facebook games.